When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-47, Zenobia Walk from the Temple of Bell along the Grand Colonnade right down to the very end. There, near the western extent of Palmyra, stands a striking funerary temple. Greco-Roman in style, with Corinthian columns and decorative reliefs of grapevines and flowers, its interior features a stairway that descends to a crypt. It's the only tomb ever discovered inside the walls of Palmyra, and it's likely it held the body of King Odonathus. Giving her husband a fitting memorial was a pretty straightforward affair at least compared to trying to preserve his legacy. But now that Zenobia had made that choice, it's worth reflecting on how her life had shaped the ruler she'd become. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Zenobia's parentage is hard to nail down, and the main contenders brought different things to the table. If her father had been chief of the Omliki tribe killed in a war against a Tanuk rival, her youth would have held both tragedy and responsibility. Confronting that loss at an early age may have prepared her, in some ways, for dealing with the sudden shock of her husband's death. If her father was Zenobius Zabdilla, the Palmyrene Strategos under Severus Alexander, then she was born in the very nexus of Palmyrene power. This was a man who'd watched the Romans march into Persia and never return, and it's tempting to picture him spinning the tale to his daughter. I mean, who knows? The story of a youthful emperor inexperienced in war and his bitter defeat by Sassanid rivals may have shaped her first impressions of the Roman Empire. Then again, she was only four when history basically repeated itself. This time, the youthful emperor was Gordian III, not Alexander, but his lack of experience and crushing defeat were even more pronounced. 
Imagine asking a young Zenobia what she thought a Roman emperor was. Well, he was a boy sent east every decade or so to be sacrificed to the Sassanids. It was likely the year of Gordian's death that she first heard the name Odenathus. Her earliest memory may even have been of his public elevation to Ras Tadmor. Over the next few years, she may have heard grumbles of the oppressive rule of a Roman named Priscus. At the age of eight came Yotapian's revolt, and shortly after, his murder by Rome. And then, suddenly, when she was thirteen, all Syria looked to the east. Dura and Anna attacked by Shapur, the imminent threat of Persian destruction, then the sudden miraculous victory at Emesa at the hands of the priest Samsi Garamus. Two years later, when she was fifteen, the emperor Valerian finally came east. But he only stayed long enough to strip Samsi Garamus of his power and likely his life. So, yeah, I think it's a distinct possibility that in the early formative years of her life, Zenobia may have gotten a negative impression of Rome. It was shortly after, at 17, when the big changes hit all at once. Her marriage to Odenathus, his elevation to governor, and the beginning of her pregnancy with their son Vabalathus. And even if she'd slowly, gradually, grudgingly found herself warming to Valerian's Rome, the trend likely ended on his defeat and capture outside the walls of Edessa. The main trends over the seven years since had been Gallienus's increasing reliance on Odenathus and the mounting victories of her husband's armies on numerous eastern battlefields. He was Dux, Imperator, and Bane of the Persians, and she'd ridden and marched and fought beside him. And now he was dead, and she had to fill a virtually impossible hole. As I've mentioned and quoted repeatedly during the series, the ancient sources absolutely loved Odenathus. All virtue, no vice, all honor, no shame, all victories and never defeats. He's always portrayed as the perfect ruler, seasoned with only the most positive stereotypes from his Syrian Arabic background. Even if Zenobia had been a competent placeholder, you'd still expect the ancient sources to bemoan the plunge from Odenathus's lofty heights. But, strangely enough, that's not what you get. Instead, you get passages like these. Zenobia then took upon her the administration of affairs. She was the wife of Odenathus, but had the courage of a man. And with the assistance of her husband's friends, acted in every respect as well as he had done. That's Zosimus, writing only a couple hundred years later. The Historia Augusta credits Zenobia with surpassing in courage and skill not merely Gallienus, but also many an emperor. It also puts a fictitious speech in the mouth of the later emperor Aurelian that roundly praises Queen Zenobia for all her positive traits. 
How wise in counsels, how steadfast in plans, how firm toward the soldiers, how generous when necessity calls, and how stern when discipline demands. I might even say that it was her doing that Odenathus defeated the Persians and, after putting Shapur to flight, advanced all the way to Tessaphon. It also fleshes out her legend with some anecdotal tidbits. It is said, moreover, that frequently she walked with her foot soldiers for three or four miles. She hunted with the eagerness of a Spaniard. She often drank with her generals, though at times she refrained, and she drank too with the Persians and the Armenians, but only for the purpose of getting the better of them. Now, I probably don't have to belabor the point, but ancient writers, be they Greek, Roman, Syrian, Jewish, Christian, or otherwise, weren't really known for going out of their way to trumpet the accomplishments of women. And that's just talking about women in general. At least since the days of Antony and Cleopatra, the most reliable villain in any Roman narrative was the corrupt and seductive Eastern Queen. The fact that there's barely a hint of this when discussing Queen Zenobia suggests that contemporaries would have found the portrayal unconvincing. And sure, you can say the author was only praising Zenobia to contrast with the despised Gallienus, or to make Aurelian's triumph seem greater by giving him a virtuous foe. And while there's likely some truth in both those statements, they're certainly not the whole story. Another aspect that's probably worth highlighting is that Zenobia was an actual warrior queen. Talk all you want about Cleopatra, or the political power of the Emocene women, or the machinations of Livia Augusta or the Empress Agrippina, but none of them ever strapped on armor and rode into battle against an enemy. I mean, Agrippina once reviewed the troops wearing the cloak of a Roman general, and the entire Roman establishment nearly burst a blood vessel. So praising Zenobia for her martial courage was also breaking new ground. But the greatest testament to Zenobia's succession can be measured by what didn't happen. First and foremost, Shapur didn't invade. If he had staged Odenathus's murder in the hopes of shattering Palmyrene unity, his gambit, at least for the moment, had failed. But it was at least equally critical that not a single Roman official revolted. Governors, legates, and the troops they commanded all chose to back the transition. And lastly, no one in the Palmyrene court tried to launch a second coup, to replace Zenobia with a more acceptable ruler. There must have been some Palmyrene officials who understood the score, that the titles that gave Odenathus real power could never be inherited by his family. But install another male military figure, one who proved his worth against the Persians, and he could potentially reclaim Odenathus's titles from a grateful Emperor Gallienus. 
And here's where my bit of idle speculation intersects with Septimius Verodes. Verodes was Odenathus's right-hand man and the de facto viceroy of Palmyra. But shortly after Odenathus's death, Verodes just disappears. He was a perfect fit with the logic above, and whether or not he took any action, he'd always remain a potential threat to Zenobia's claim to the throne. It's reasonable to assume she neutralized the threat, though exactly how is unknown. Killing Verodes would have been unthinkable. He was one of Palmyra's most honored citizens. Maybe she simply chose to demote him in favor of her generals Zabai and Zabdis. Or maybe he spoke out against her plans and found himself banished from her court. But whether he left, died, or took a diminished role, Verodes is never heard from again. As mentioned last episode, Zenobia decided her best course of action was to rule through her son Vabalathus. When facing the east, this was pretty straightforward. Vabalathus was simply king of kings. The title was inherited, his mother was regent, and if anyone wanted to challenge his legitimacy, they were certainly welcome to, you know, take up arms. But to the loyal provinces of the Roman Near East, king of kings really didn't mean squat. And Zenobia had to pick some title to give her son a little Roman legitimacy. I mean, everyone was willing to accept the fiction that Odenathus's titles were still in play, but given that, it had to be something palatable. Not a nine-year-old senator, or Clarissimus Consularis, or Dux Orientis, or Imperator. All those seemed a bit beyond the pale. According to historian Pat Southern, the one she chose was the Greek Eponorthotes, roughly comparable to the Latin corrector or governor. It was a pretty good pick. Honorary enough to claim respect, but ambiguous enough not to challenge. Zenobia also had a critical third audience, the 50-year-old Roman emperor, Gallienus. By 268, Gallienus had spent 15 years on the Roman throne, half that time since his father's capture, which incidentally made him the longest reigning emperor since Caracalla. And while you'd think this would earn him a little praise from the sources, Gallienus gets exactly zero love. You can certainly attribute a portion of this to the grim realities of his reign. Massive, sustained barbarian invasions, a steady stream of usurpation attempts, the humiliation of Valerian's capture, and, oh yeah, the loss of the frickin' Gallic Empire. Despite the enormous challenges he faced, Gallienus kept focused on the empire's defense, but was frequently undermined by his own poor personnel management. A brilliant cavalry commander named Oriolus, whom Gallienus had demoted for questionable reasons, captured Mediolanum, the modern Milan, and offered to join the Gallic Empire. 
While its ruler, Postumus, didn't take the bait, it did force Gallienus to reprioritize. And he broke off from fighting the Goths in Thrace to return and deal with Aureolus. Sometime during all these events, Gallienus got word of Zenobia's succession. But whatever his related thoughts or plans, he was never able to take any action. In 268, while besieging Mediolanum, Gallienus was killed by two Roman officials named Heraclianus and Claudius. Heraclianus was Praetorian prefect, while Claudius was tribune and cavalry commander. So this was a pretty straight-up coup by men very close to the top. Whether they were reflecting the public mood or just thought that they could run things better, the conspirators wasted little time getting Claudius acclaimed as emperor. Now, Claudius wasn't Gothicus yet. He'd earned that title in an upcoming battle. But his surface-level character sketch breaks down a little like this. Illyrian birth, lifelong military, physically strong, and with a vicious streak. And while he sounds a bit like Maximinus Thrax, let's not write him off just yet. A bit surprisingly, his first decision was to deify and properly bury Gallienus. Meanwhile, his legions continued to prosecute the siege of Mediolanum. Catching a whiff of mercy in the air, Aureolus surrendered and tried to cut a deal. But Claudius bowed to his soldiers' wishes and sentenced the rebel to death. Then he pardoned Aureolus's troops, combined their forces with his own, and marched off north with the prefect Heraclianus to confront a Germanic invasion. Zenobia learned of all these events her first year after taking power, and it's hard to gauge how she might have received the news. The military coup appeared to reflect the ongoing weakness at the Empire's core, which might bode well for whatever plans she might be making for the East. On the downside, Claudius's martial reputation might be a future cause for concern if he decided to replace her quasi-autonomy with a more direct form of Roman rule. In the meantime, Zenobia did what she could to observe all the usual Roman forms. The Antioch Mint produced imperial coins, of first Gallienus, then later of Claudius, but nothing featuring the images or titles of Zenobia or Vabalathus. Also, as historian Pat Southern notes, Roman governors continued to be appointed to various provinces, and she did not interfere with their activities in day-to-day -day government. The one real area where she took some initiative was building up frontier defenses. Palmyra's frontiers were on the Euphrates, and the loss of Dura in 256 had removed a critical strong point. Zenobia decided to counter the loss by building two new fortresses. Halabie was built on the western bank, about a hundred miles upstream of Dura, where the river was forced to flow through a narrow gap. 
The site had been considered strategic for millennia, going all the way back to the kingdom of Ebla. It had also been used by the Neo-Assyrians and the Romans, who'd stationed a garrison there. Centuries after Palmyra's fall, Halabiyad be expanded by the Emperor Justinian, though by then it was known by its more common name of Zenobia. Two miles downriver on the opposite bank, she built the sister fortress of Zalabiyad. While preparing for Persian invasion was wise, she may have been watching the wrong border. Because pretty soon Zenobia learned that a Roman army was marching east. At the Battle of Nisus in 269, the Emperor Claudius had earned his Gothicus. After beating the Germans at Lake Bonacus, Claudius had learned that a Gothic fleet, with hundreds of ships, had assembled near the mouth of the Dniester River. They proceeded to ravage Byzantium and Chrysopolis, along with the islands of Crete and Rhodes. But when they'd heard the emperor was on his way, they'd made for the Balkan interior. Near the city of Nisus, modern Nice, Serbia, Claudius had won a decisive victory, catching the Goths in a Roman ambush and killing or capturing 50,000. In keeping with his stern reputation, Claudius had continued pursuing the rest. And those who didn't die along the way were eventually forced to surrender. Only a bit worrisome was the related fact that many had died of a plague. But Claudius had shown he could also be merciful by giving the survivors plots of land and inviting them to join the Roman army. In the wake of his victory, Claudius decided to deal with some unfinished business. Now, according to him, that unfinished business was prosecuting the war against the Persians. As you may recall, Odenathus was in the middle of besieging Tessaphon when he'd been forced to break away to fight the Heruli. And now that Claudius had a suitable window, he could spare a few legions to send east. How many legions? Well, don't worry about that. It should be more than enough for the task at hand. Which, by the way, is totally limited to fighting the Persians, side by side with our good friends, the Palmyrenes. Well, you'll pardon Zenobia if she thought, just maybe, Claudius might have something else in mind. As the legions marched east... Under the Praetorian prefect Heraclianus, she took steps to prepare for their arrival. And, for anyone wondering, the Historia Augusta places these events under Gallienus in 268. But historian Pat Southern makes a very strong case that they most likely occurred under Claudius. Southern also highlights the apparent non-sequitur in the description of what happened next. The Historia Augusta says that this Heraclianus, however, on setting out against the Persians, was defeated by the Palmyrenes and lost all the troops he had gathered. For Zenobia was ruling Palmyra and most of the east with the vigor of a man. 
Either due to his loss or for some other reason, Heraclianus later committed suicide. So, okay, well, that was weird. And Claudius had definitely shown his hand. Which, to mix my metaphors a bit, had nearly been bitten off. And Zenobia had barely countered that threat before she had to turn her attention east to deal with some kind of trouble with the Sassanids. Whether a full-scale invasion or a minor skirmish, only one relevant fact is recorded. In 269, her son Vabalathus took the title of Persicus Maximus. Though, since he was 11 and Zenobia was 29, it's a safe bet who'd really earned the title. At about the same time, the Emperor Claudius claimed the title of Parthicus Maximus, which basically says two things right off the bat. One, the Romans really need to update their software, because the Sassanids are totally different from the Parthians. And two, Queen Zenobia and Claudius Gothicus had apparently reached an understanding. The understanding likely had the same nature as the one between Gallienus and Odenathus. I can't really do anything to dislodge you, and I basically need you to protect the frontier, so for now I'll give you my unspoken blessing, and in return I'll take credit for your victories. All of which was well and good, but Zenobia had learned a few additional lessons. Forced to fight on two frontiers, against the region's two most powerful empires, she'd learned that Palmyra's armies were equal to the task. She'd learned, if it even needed reinforcement, that Shapur's best days were now behind him, and the Persians likely feared Palmyrene aggression more than the other way around. And she'd learned that Rome was not to be trusted but also not necessarily to be feared. And that knowledge alone may have opened her thoughts to a whole new range of possibilities. <laughs> 